December 9th, 1965, A Charlie Brown Christmas aired for the very first time on network television. And for the next 55 years, that show ran annually on major network television. ABC and then eventually CBS bought the rights to the show. Until 2019, Apple TV bought all of the streaming rights and it no longer streams on major network television. Charles Schultz was the creator of the Peanuts cartoon. He was actually said to be a man plagued by anxiety and self-doubt and fear of rejection. But when it came to the production of A Charlie Brown Christmas, those involved with that process, they described Schultz as confident and assured, focused and driven. Schultz insisted on one core purpose in being requested to make A Charlie Brown Christmas. He told everybody, this cartoon, this, this, this has to be about something, namely the true meaning of Christmas. Now, hopefully you guys have all seen it. It is, it is a legit animation classic. Charlie Brown, he mopes through the show amidst Christmas lights and cheer, but he's, as Charlie Brown always is, depressed. He's despondent. He's bothered by the shallow commercialization of Christmas. He's worn out by the overcrowded schedules. He can't figure out what it all means. And then he thinks, Charlie Brown thinks he might have found his purpose when he's commissioned to direct the annual Christmas play, but then that too falls apart for Charlie Brown because he goes out and all he can find is this scraggly little bit of a leftover pine tree for a Christmas tree and everybody's mocking him and making fun of him. And so Charlie Brown reaches this place where he's just ready to give up and he cries out in desperation, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? To which the most unassuming and the meekest of all heroes, little Linus Van Pelt, with his little blue blanket, he responds and he says, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And then Linus walks to center stage, calls for the lights, and he begins to read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Now, there's something interesting here. Linus, as he recites the passage, purposefully drops his blanket. And there are some who think that Schultz actually intended that blanket drop to be a symbol of dropping everything that we trust in for comfort and peace and security and joy. So we didn't open with scripture reading because I thought we would let Linus do it for us this morning. We're going to watch now this scene from A Charlie Brown Christmas. I guess you were right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men.
That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Super cute, yeah? Now, listen, even back in the 60s, Schultz had to stand his ground. He had to resist intense pressure from network heads and corporate sponsors to get that reading from the New Testament into this cartoon. Now, to this day, this little cartoon, it actually stands as an outlier in the entertainment industry complex because of this gospel reading. This little cartoon is still resisting the cultural tides of distraction and over-busyness, and the forgetfulness of the true meaning of Christmas. Barack Obama, back in 2015, got himself into a bit of a scandal based on the 50th viewing of this showing of this cartoon because he said in a, in a cap-off of the 50th anniversary of the cartoon, a Charlie Brown Christmas, this is Obama, reminds us that the truest meaning of Christmas is that all trees need love, especially the little ones. And he lit off a firestorm, completely ignoring what Linus had just told Charlie Brown. There is a subtle and a sometimes not so subtle aversion to the true meaning of Christmas in most of our educational, political, entertainment, and elite classes. The ever-present and immeasurably brilliant Tim Keller, he observes in How to Reach the, Rest Again, How to Reach the West Again, saying this, the overall decline of Christian influence in the West is inarguable. Each generation is becoming less religious and less Christian more than two-thirds of the churches in the United States have plateaued or are in decline. While religion was broadly seen as a social good or at least benign, increasing numbers of people now see the church as bad for people and a major obstacle to social progress. Keller goes on and he observes from that that today's culture believes the thing we need salvation from is the idea that we need salvation. The result of a society, friends, that, the, that believes the one thing we need saved from is that we need salvation, the result of that has been a measurable, there isn't a study that doesn't show this, a measurable growing tsunami of anxiety and angst and confusion and exhaustion and depression. Keller goes on and he concludes, he says, the late modern view of reality and the self does not fit human nature as God designed it. Church, our souls separated from God cannot bear the weight of our own existence. We cannot live in a flourishing way against the grain of the universe. Elizabeth Gilbert, she wrote, eat, pray, love. In an interview, she was talking about the demise of what she considered the creative communities and the struggle that the creatives of our culture have. And she said this, she said, I gotta tell you, I think we've made a huge error. I think that allowing somebody to believe that he or she is the source of all divine, creative, unknowable, eternal mystery is just a smidge too much responsibility to put on one fragile human psyche. It's like asking someone to swallow the sun. It just completely warps the ego and it creates all these unmanageable expectations about performance. And I think the pressure of that has been killing off our artists for the last 500 years. Philosopher Dallas Willard said, reality is what you run into when you're wrong. <laughs> and so collectively and personally, when we are wrong about 
the existence of God and our relationship to God, we hit reality. When we are trying to swallow the sun and we can't, we hit reality and it's overwhelming. And that overwhelm may just be a deep terror that is somewhere in the unconscious of our existence, but it is looming there because we inherently know that we do not exist by our own strength and we know that we need someone to save us from the end of our existence. And so we may try to believe the lie that we don't need salvation, but we expend much of our energy trying to save ourselves and we will make a savior out of almost anything, wealth. Instead of wealth being accumulated in order to share generously, we can make wealth our savior and we hoard it more and more, trusting it to save us from insecurity and uncertainty, to give to us an identity. Power. Power as a savior manipulates situations and people. We use our words and ways to manipulate people and situations to keep us in control rather than using power and authority to lift up the least of these. We can make external beauty, especially in this cultural moment, our savior. And we spend our days comparing ourselves and doing things to our bodies in an attempt to attain the impossible appearances we see via our filtered Instagram feeds. And in our over-sexualized society, our bodies are reduced to commodities, to be used or to be used by the other. And this destroys the God-created dignity and inherent beauty of every image bearer on this planet. We can make platform our savior. All we need is more social media followers and greater fame to assure us that we are significant, that we indeed do mean something. But what we find is these identities built on the fickle opinions of humans are extremely fragile and cannot withstand criticism or unpopularity. We can make, especially here in the affluent West, comfort and pleasure our savior. We are absolutely terrified of suffering and we are incapable of finding contentment and peace in all circumstances. Friends, this season here on this last Sunday together in 2021, Advent, the remembrance of God becoming one with us. Advent re-centers us as we remember reality as we remember the truth. Advent reorients our souls in reality as we recover the true meaning of Christmas. And in so doing, in recovering this true meaning of Christmas, you and I are granted an unshakable joy. From the text again that Linus read for us this morning, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Messiah the Lord. A savior has been born to you. That is such a simple but profound reality. Our Savior has come. And this good news that causes great joy is for all the people. That means for you in your anxiety and depression and exhaustion and fear and fatigue, a Savior has been born for you. He has come to you and wants to deliver you from all that is besetting you in this season. 
Now, while it may seem elementary and kind of Christianity 101 for those of us who've got a number of Christian years under our belt, to remember that we have actually been saved from the cosmic powers and principalities that torment humanity, that creates immeasurable joy. (laughs) To believe that our deliverance from the cruel slave master of sin has been accomplished, that is what sets our souls in the deepest places to actually singing in celebration. To be consciously aware that our guilt, all of our guilt, all of our shame, has been absorbed by our Savior over time, over time as we meditate on this, it has the power to transform our anxiety and our depression into actual delight. And at the crux, at the root of everything that we believe, to know that death, our death has been defeated and our victor has saved us through the resurrection, well, that just creates an unshakable confidence no matter what comes. No matter what plight we face, no matter what plague we have to mask ourselves to protect ourselves from, whether the masks work or not, I don't know. Everybody's telling me different things. It doesn't matter. If I die, I will resurrect. Unshakable certainty, confidence, joy, passion, wisdom all come when we reorient ourselves to the reality that our Savior has come. And so we, with the angels, sing our song, harking the heralds across the land, glory to this newborn king, peace, friends on earth, and mercy mild, God and sinner have been reconciled, joyful, all ye nations rise, join this triumph of the skies, and with the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. This good news, friends, is a declaration for all of us today to drop our blankets. It's an invitation to truly let go, to trust in deeper ways than you've ever trusted, to remember and return to reality. Your fragile psyche does not have to bear the load of existence today. You don't have to swallow the sun. You don't have to save yourself. The incarnation and And Jesus is coming, embodying himself in flesh. It was the inauguration of a new reality. It was the launching of this universal recreation project, all brought about by the power of God's spirit through his saved people. Now, track with me as we turn a corner here for just a moment. Our joy, the joy that you're being invited to today, it's actually birthed in and through tremendous pain. One of the vice grips that Satan has on Western Christian culture is the lie that joy comes with the absence of pain. It just doesn't exist in this world. Matt last week mentioned uh, Viktor Frankl. If you haven't read Man's Search for Meaning, it's probably one of the most important reads of the last hundred years. Frankl was a a clinical psychiatrist, and he survived the Nazi gas chambers, lost his father and his mother. Uh, His wife eventually died from the results of that stress gas chambers, he survived them, and he developed this entire school of psychology, logotherapy, based on finding meaning in the absolute worst of circumstances. In a 1983 lecture given in Germany, Frankl presented a case for what he called a necessary tragic optimism. Tragic optimism. He talked about the trifecta of pain and guilt and death that is woven into the human experience. None of us gets to be free from pain or guilt or death, that unclean, terrible trifecta. And Frankel said the way to live this life is with a tragic optimism. 
a tragic optimism that recognizes the pains and loss of life, but learns to find meaning in them as a way forward. Advent joy creates tragic optimism. Advent is tragically optimistic. The very story of Christmas, the very story of the incarnation is in the context of deep brokenness and terrible darkness because of sin. So we're all watching and seeing and meditating on and loving the manger scenes. Mary Joseph, the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, all cozy. But those warm scenes can diminish the tragic reality that the baby came to be clothed in our unrighteousness and die our death. This is a painting from the early 15th century by a man named Robert Camp, and I wish that you could see this painting more clearly. It's called the Annunciation Triptych. There's actually two other panels for this painting, one on the left, one on the right. One depict the other panel depicting Joseph working as a carpenter, the other working as two honorary donors that are coming to pay tribute to the Virgin Mary. And so in this scene, if you can see it, the angel Gabriel there on your left is coming and announcing to the Virgin Mary there on the right that she's going to be the bearer of the Savior of the world. Now, it's very hard to see this, but and before you change to the next painting, Josh, just give this a second. In between the angel's wings there on the left, just above the angel's wings, what you'll see is Capon depicting the in utero Jesus Christ approaching the Virgin Mary and the fetus is actually carrying a cross. Go ahead and multiply or amplify that, Josh. Can you see that? That is Capon's depiction of the baby Jesus prior to him being placed in the womb of Mary, a fetus carrying a cross. Friends, Christmas is as much about the cross as it is about the birth. Josh, would you go back to that first painting? When we look at this scene here, Capon's scene, it's, it's full of wonder. It's full of delight. The way that he does the light, even the, 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 the placid folding of the garments, there's just this serenity about the scene. There's this promise and this, this expectant joy. If you could see the other two panels, there's this anticipation and joy on the characters' faces because a baby is about to be born, but that baby comes bearing the instrument on light rays, bearing the instrument of darkness and wounding and breaking because we have wounded and broken his world. It is tragic on the one hand and yet full of hope because though, as the hymn says, our world now lays in sin and error pining, we all this morning, O God, Spirit, come, can feel our soul's worth because God embodied himself in flesh for us and through the promise of the resurrection and our guilt-free, joy-filled, delivered souls because of the crucifixion, we can feel the worth of our souls and live in this world tragically optimistic. And this tragic optimism carries through even in the way that we experience joy in this life. Advent joy, friends, is found where you and I would least expect it. The world teaches us to look for joy in all the wrong places in contrast to where the Bible teaches us to seek for joy. The incarnation 
And the story of Christianity creates an upside-down hierarchy is the way I've been thinking about this lately. It gives us an upside-down nature to joy, and it tells us that we find joy in the least likely places. Luke, at the beginning of the reading, tells us that the news of the Savior being born was first heralded to a group of lowly shepherds in the rural hills of Judea. So any of you that have played a shepherd in the plays, they're super cute. But the reality is, in first century Israel, even in small backwater Roman provinces like Judea, shepherds sat at the bottom of the social strata. So according to the Mishnah, which was a collection of like kind of Jewish commentaries and oral traditions based on Torah on the Old Testament, according to those kind of authoritative teachers, shepherds were under a ban in that culture. They were barred from social interactions with common people. They were thought of as corrupt and impure. They were regarded as thieves. The only people in first century Jewish culture that were lower than shepherds were actually lepers. And so everything that the cultural narrative of Jesus' day said would lead to the, lead to the good life, lead to the, lead to the joy-filled life, these guys, the shepherds, did not have. Everything that their society and ours says they would be saved by, access to money, power, beauty, platform, fame, these these people didn't even have an opportunity to get to what society said would save them. They sat outside of the power structures. They were uneducated. They were poor. They were considered ugly. They were avoided. And it was to this community of people that the very first declarations of a Savior were given. It's for those this morning who feel outcast. You feel like you're on the outside. You feel financially impoverished. You feel socially underranked. You feel insignificant and unseen. It is to you to whom the Spirit comes with this incredible good news. A Savior has been born to you. And the reason that the Savior comes to the broken and the wounded, the outcast and the impoverished, the socially underranked, is because false saviors are very convincing. False saviors, they make it so hard for us to see and feel our need for help when all is well. This is why the Christian community has always not only reached out to the poor, but been comprised primarily of the poor throughout our history. If we are always upward and to the right in our social mobility, if we're wealthy, healthy, beautiful, and wise, We don't need someone to save us. We've got it. It's all Gucci, as the saying goes. (laughs) But it's those those who feel their need. It's those who have a sense of their impoverishment, be that financial or be that spiritual. It's those who have experienced social rejection, who find themselves saying, I have an open heart to that which will fulfill me, that which will satisfy me, that which will give me direction, that which will not fail me. But those who feel their need are those to whom the Savior comes because we've got nowhere else to go. And if you feel like you're at the wall this morning, the water's been coming up to the neck and now it's just like barely above your nose, You're the one that feels that depth of loneliness and hurt, uncertainty and fear. To you, to you a Savior has been born. And this is why, friends, Advent joy, it actually starts with weeping and brokenness. Advent joy, it starts with weeping and brokenness. 
one of the desert fathers, one of my favorites, actually, Poemon, he said, weeping is the way to God. Poemon was drawing that statement from St. Paul's explanations to the Corinthians. Paul explained in the book of 2 Corinthians to the Corinthians, there's actually a sorrow and a lament, a sadness that we as God's people must feel because there is a sadness that leads to true repentance. The Desert Fathers went on to call that sadness that leads to repentance, joy that bears grief, joy bearing grief. In other words, there is a grief, a weeping that results in, it produces true gladness and unstoppable joy. This is so counterintuitive to the cultural narrative that we have all been fed. We have been trained that nothing good can come from sadness. Nothing good can come from feeling bad or remorse or guilt. But what Poemin did was he emphasized the reality that sin, rebellion against God, ignorance of God, the belief that all we need saved from is that we need salvation, these silly things that our sinful culture has created around us and that our own flesh abides by. Paul, or Poemin, emphasized the reality that sin, is, sin robs us of our joy. And so the way to find joy starts with feeling remorse for the sin from which we need saving. He counseled, if you wish to purify your faults, wash them with tears. If you wish to acquire virtues, acquire them with tears. Weeping is the way told by the scriptures and the fathers. Weep, they say, truly there is no other way than this. Grief over sin grants gladness because Advent joy is actually rooted in repentance. It was David who said, a broken and a contrite heart you, God, will not despise. And David, that poet king of Israel, he understood this brokenness to his core. David found himself at the height of his power, and he no longer needed Yahweh. It was in the context of immense wealth, massive comfort, great ease, that David found himself still unsatisfied. And there, upon the roof, was a woman bathing naked. She happened to be married. David took a glance, took a second glance, began to stare, allowed his heart to open to lust, called for the woman to come into his chambers, impregnated her, and then to cover his tracks, had Uriah, this woman's husband, killed in battle to cover himself. And everything was going fine in David's life until his false kingdom of power and pleasure and comfort and wealth came crashing down around him. God, in his mercy, exposed David through the prophet Nathan, and some of David's prayers during this time recorded in the Psalms reveal a heart in agony. Psalm 32, David said, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And so for David, while everything looked so good and shiny on the outside, David's soul was wasting away on the inside. He had all the things that this world said constitute the good life, but he was in hell eternally. And this is the great mercy of God in our lives, especially here in the affluent, powerful, pleasure-driven, late modern West. We all can look like we've got it all together on the outside. I mean, I just spent eight days in Manhattan. Good-looking, well-dressed, super-rich, upwardly mobile people. Every, eight million of them. It's like everybody looks great. And then you get on the subs, and you're like, oh, yeah, you guys are my people. <laughs> we can look like we've got it all together on the outside, but on the inside, we are just absolutely wrecked with uncertainty, imposter syndrome, depression, exhaustion, anxiety. 
And so what David did upon his world crumbling around him, the exposure of Nathan the prophet, is he called out to his father in Psalm 51. Listen to this prayer. Pray it yourselves often. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Restore to me the joy of salvation. Restore to me the moment, the reality, the overwhelming tsunami of joy that I had been delivered from my addictions, from my patterns, from my insecurities, and ultimately from my physical death, I have been saved. Restore to me that joy. David's denial and resistance of God, it crushed his bones. But it was in repentance that he came to see his broken bones as God's merciful working. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. I want to say this so carefully. I myself struggle with deep patterns of horrific depression. Terrible, terrible, gnarly depression. Over the years, uh, I have lost all of my hair. Anxiety has wrecked me. The collective anxiety of our culture, this moment of depressive anxiousness, I do think in some ways, yes, there are chemical imbalances. Yes, there are things that we cannot control. But I also know that these are moments, the things that happen in my body personally are always moments for me to say, Father, where can I be restored to the joy of my salvation? Because what I'm anxious for right now is a false savior to save me. What I'm depressed about right now is a false savior isn't providing for me what I think I need. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And this repentance, friends, it results in a, the only way I can describe it is a radical, almost crazy obedience. Advent joy is experienced through a total obedience, a radical, radical, sacrificial, risk-taking, total obedience obedience. Oswald Chambers, I'm currently reading through all of his works. He wrote way more than my utmost for his highest, by the way, and he's incredible. He said, joy means the perfect fulfillment of that for which I was created and regenerated, not the successful doing of a thing. What Chambers was insightfully highlighting here is another one of those upside down hierarchies in the Christian kingdom, this counterintuitive way in which Christian joy looks very different from the way that the world pursues joy. Don't miss that last little bit of the quote there. I think it's the the meat of this teaching this morning. Chambers said that joy was not necessarily found in the successful doing of a thing, but in fulfilling that for which I was created. Now, in our culture, second place is still losing. (laughs) It's still losing. And in the church, we have begun to believe that if everything we do, even our kingdom acts of service are measurable and seen and up and to the right and getting bigger and more expansive, I'm telling you, bums in seats and budgets are the bane of my existence as a pastor. Because all of that is this outward measurable metric whereby I can say, we're being successful, I'm so full of joy, or we're not being successful, I'm so depressed. And we all have these outward external things that we do, both kingdom and career-wise. 
The minute things aren't going great, though, especially if we've prayed and obeyed. I prayed, God, I thought you told me to do this. I've obeyed, and I've hit a wall. And it's going worse than I could have ever anticipated. And it's not upward and to the right. It's downward and to the left. In fact, it's just kind of laying there in fetal position, barely alive. (laughs) Have you ever prayed and said, yes, this is what I believe I'm supposed to do, and then it just felt like a train wreck? Oswald would say, We are robbed of our joy because we're rooting our happiness in the outward results of our work versus our internal obedience to Jesus. Chambers understood something about the tragic optimism of the upside-down way of Advent, joy based on the cross. Obedience brings joy, not the immediate outward results of obedience. Again, just one other quick story. I was in a a prayer breakout session with a woman that leads prayer for uh, John Tyson's church, Church of the City in New York. And she was telling the story of leading uh, uh, all-night prayer movements for like months. And somewhere months into it, of course, the crowds that came to pray initially had dwindled. She found herself at four o'clock in the morning. There's like two people in this room. She's leading worship. The two people are like full out asleep. And she's just praying away. And she found herself saying, is this it? I've obeyed you. I've obeyed you. You told me to pray all night and lead these people in all night prayer movements. Now these two are asleep. I'm here all alone. Is this doing any good? Is this my life, four o'clock in the morning, praying alone? And she said, the Lord very clearly said to her, if this blesses me and brings such delight to my soul to have you, my daughter, praying at four in the morning alone and nobody else knows, is that enough? is that enough? And she said, she just broke down weeping and she said, I will pray by myself until the day I die. If I don't see a single result from it, but I know it blesses my king, then I will obey. Pure joy. Alexis and I last night watched Terrence, uh, uh, now I forgot his name, A Hidden Life. Have you guys seen this? Probably one of the most, most powerful cinematic movies I've ever seen made. You need to go watch this movie. And the whole premise of Terrence Malick, that's his name, the whole premise of the movie is this one lone German man who says, I'm going to resist. And over and over and over, he's in prison. And over and over, the guards are coming to him saying, don't you know nobody will even know what you're doing? Don't you know none of this will make any difference? Don't you know what you're doing is unseen? Why are you doing this? Why don't you just stop? And yet here we find ourselves on a Sunday morning years and years removed, and I'm talking to you about this woman's prayer, and all of you were like, oh, and God used it. And here we are talking about that German man that nobody knew, being inspired by his obedience. Radical obedience, knowing in this moment that you are doing what you're doing for the king to bring delight to his heart, no matter what it costs, this is the source of your joy. Because on all accounts, friends, the incarnation and the crucifixion of Jesus looked like an abysmal failure. God left glory. He lived as an impoverished and marginalized peasant. He was maligned and misunderstood at every step by even his closest confidants and then abandoned by them to his capital punishment by the Roman Empire. So instead of driving out the occupiers, he was murdered by them. And yet Jesus, just the night before his crucifixion, said to his disciples, I have told you this, take in everything that he taught and said and did in the Gospels, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. 
Everything Jesus did joyfully was done in radical obedience to his father. And though outwardly, initially, it did not look successful, Jesus walked in the joy of the Holy Spirit through perfect obedience. And it is the joy of obedience, no matter what it looks like externally, that he imparts to us. We are given his joy, the joy of communion with our father by the spirit, the joy of being united with God as his children in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we know that we know that we know that we are walking in obedience, even Even if it seems like things are falling apart at the seams, we can stand with a smile on our face and we can sing joyfully, I have been delivered and my salvation has granted me eternal life. This is the reality of Advent for us. When we know we're walking in obedience, there is joy. Jesus' obedience led to the resurrection. What looked like failure was actually the ultimate victory. And what looked like an unsuccessful mission was the apex of success. So this Advent season, we, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And here's where we land the plane. Dearest friends, in my own life, this is my conviction for my personal life. I'm glad for you to follow along with me in this. I'm utterly convinced. I am utterly convinced that it is joy, this deep, unalterable, unchanging, stable joy that God will use as the primary weapon we wield in a world that is growing in anxiety and anger and exhaustion and depression. G.K. Chesterton said, joy is the gigantic secret of the Christian. And so as we close and come to communion this morning for the final time this year, consider this. The psalmist would say, in the presence of the Lord is joy and pleasures evermore. In the presence of the Lord, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, in the presence of our God, there is this great joy that it exceeds the joys that false saviors offer us. Nehemiah would say to the people, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so this morning, if you feel worn out, ragged, trying to swallow the sun, your fragile psyche is carrying the weight of your existence to you, a savior has been born. Alone, unrecognized, unseen, marginalized, you prayed, you obeyed, and it's falling apart like a train wreck. Somehow, someway, in the resurrection, upside down hierarchy, there is joy in your obedience and it will be used to manifest the kingdom. And it is that joy that you can stand on and live in and grant to others. It may be the greatest gift we have been given through the birth of Jesus here in this Christmas season, a joy that cannot be taken from us. And it's a joy that doesn't ignore the pain and troubles of life, but sees through this lens of tragic optimism. It's this joy that comes to the least of these and the worst of circumstances. And it's a joy that is filled by repentance and radical obedience to God. It is the very joy of God embodied among us, Jesus. We don't have any records of Jesus laughing. I've often considered this. I just think it was too much for the gospel authors to capture with human words. We have record of him weeping there at the tomb of Lazarus, a man acquainted with grief, but we don't have any record of Jesus laughing because I think it would have just shook the universe to its core. I think when those disciples heard Jesus laughing, they felt the universe shake and they couldn't put it into words. This is the joy we've been given. Would you do something with me before we come to communion? 
there under your beautiful masks. Smile as big as you can right now. Fake it. Smile. Smile bigger. There under your mask, smile. This is a signpost to the reality of what is fully yours. The muscles in your face contracting, the chemicals that even that contraction of those muscles produce in your brain, all sorts of stuff happens when we even just fake a smile. These are all little miniature signposts of the joy of the kingdom of God breaking in. This unchanging, immovable, eternal joy of salvation. And so this Christmas season, as we go to spend time with family and friends, trying to keep up with the chaos of overcrowded calendars and scraggly little pine trees, with Linus, can we just be heralds with a smile on our face at the true meaning of Christmas? As plague seeks to offset again another Christmas season with sourness and upsetness and political conversations that we all want to avoid, conversations around science that none of us are trained to actually understand. <laughs> Laugh, children of God. Laugh, for you will never die. You are never going to die. You are saved. This is joy, true, everlasting, unchanging joy. And I'm telling you, your friends and your family, they need the joy of Jesus. So give them that. Father, in Jesus' name, we come this morning to commune with you, to partake of the bread and cup and remember that God embodied himself in flesh, that we might feel the worth of our souls. For the unseen and the marginalized, the forgotten and the outcast, for the one who finds himself this morning in fetal position, on the ground, thumb in their mouth, it's all a train wreck. For the one who's angry this morning, I prayed, I obeyed, what's happened? To you a savior has been born. To the one whose bones have been crushed, it feels merciless and yet may they this day find the mercy of a tender hand, pierced, wounded, beaten and broken, grab them by the cheeks and look deeply into their eyes. And on this day, Father, may you capture the tears of the saints in a bottle. May we sing your praises, O Holy God, as we cap this year together as a family. May we sing and celebrate your goodness. May we worship you. May we put smiles on our faces, no matter how strained or stressed those smiles may feel. They are signposts of the truth. They reorient us with reality because we have indeed been saved. Speak now, Father. Spirit, do your work. We yield ourselves to you. We bow before you in holy and reverent worship. We align ourselves with reality and the grain of the universe. We live into the way you designed us to be a people utterly dependent, sheep of your pasture under the great shepherd give you glory. We exalt you. It is what we were designed to do, to exalt and worship and sing your praise. In Jesus' name, amen.